Get down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. Get down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. Get down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. Who's down with D&D? Yeah, you know Get down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. Get down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. I'm down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. Who's down with D&D? Are you ready to get down with some D&D? I know I am. I am joined this time, not by the person that I am always joined by, but by the secret weapon of Misdirected Mark Productions, Drew Smith. Hey, that's me. Yes. Yes, it is you. What is up, man? Well, I'm here. You are here. It's amazing. For those of you who don't know, me and Drew go way back at this point, like more than a decade. God, we're old. And we're getting there. We're not old yet. I mean, we just had that discussion earlier when we were playing some Dungeon World, uh, when, you know, uh, we were talking about what actually uh, an old man is. <laughs> we're the youngest in the group. I think we are. I think you, I, I'm not sure how old Rob, Rob is. So, but I know we're both younger than Jerry and Bob. So, and I know you're younger than I am. Mm, by a smidge. By a smidge, just a smidge. Anyways, uh, today the topic is Adventures in Middle-Earth. Drew is our, we're bringing him in because he's the guy who's been running Adventures in Middle-Earth, and he's got many things to say about it, and I have many questions to ask him about it because I've never played it, but he's played a bunch of it, and I can't wait for him to let you know what is different about Adventures in Middle-Earth and why you might want to adopt some of those things for your D&D games. Yes, I've got opinions. But before we get to that, a few announcements. So first things first, Robert Aducci, AL admin Robert Aducci, is, is stepping down. Effective January 1st, he is no longer going to be the community manager. Alan Patrick will step into the community manager role, and Lisa Chen will be brought in to be the associate manager position. He's stepping away because he's got many projects that he wants to work on. So he's still going to be doing some D&D stuff. He's still going to be running AL adventures. He's still going to be running author-only adventures. And uh, he's still doing that Patreon that he does too. So if you want to play games with Robert Aducci, no problem. If you want to be involved with Robert Aducci in some way, shape, or form, you can catch him at a bunch of different cons. There's a post that is up that I will have a link in the show notes and you can check out all the rest of the details there. The next bit of news that I wanted to throw out there was the Tomb of Horrors 5th edition Reborn is now kickstarting currently. That is by Frog God Games. It's pretty awesome. If you want monsters, like the Tomb of Horrors is a great book. It's one of the best monster books that ever existed, if you ask me, and a lot of other people also believe that. So the the Tomb of Horrors it was by Necromancer Games a bunch of years ago, in like I think 2001. It's a it's widely thought of as one of the better, if not best, monster books ever created. I mean, that was before Cobalt Press started doing the ones that they've been doing for Fifth Edition. So I'm really fascinated to see what this Fifth Edition version of the Tome of Horrors looks like. Well, now I'm interested. Yeah, right. Like if you like monster books, this is kind of the monster book that you want to get your hands on. Because they're going to draw probably their best stuff from like all of the stuff that they've made previously. Like like I said, like I mentioned, there's there's been four four pretty big books and a bunch of different little supplements. It's uh it's very exciting. Once again, I will have a link in the show notes if you want to check that out. I think you should go back it if you're interested in monster books for your games. Well, that's all the announcements we have for the day. With that, let's get on to our topic: adventures in Middle Earth. Drew, would you please lead us in by telling us, uh, give us a little bit of background about how much you've been running it and and what you know about it. Sure. So I've been running uh, 5th edition since the beginning, and 4th edition before that, and um, I think I skipped running any 3rd edition, but ran some 2nd edition. Point is, I've been been a game master for a real long time in D&D. After playing 5th edition, I've kind of, like a lot of people, refound my my passion for D&D, specifically D&D, with 5th edition. And uh, when these books came out, I, I jumped on board immediately. I always was watching the One Ring RPG, and these books that we'll be talking about today, The Adventures in Middle-Earth for 5th Edition from Cubicle 7, these are literally just directly adapted from the One Ring RPG into 5th Edition. So when I saw these, I jumped on board. I'm a big Tolkien fan. 
I had always sort of been jealous that I never had a chance to play the One Ring, and this was sort of my chance to get some Tolkien action. So I jumped on board, got the Player's Guide, Loremaster's Guide, I got the Rovanian Guide, I have a few adventure supplements in PDF, but I, I'd be, I, I'm planning to, to follow this product um, in the future for sure. And I've now run about five sessions of it, actually with my wife's family. We've got a, a fun family situation where we get together on holidays and we play D&D. We used to play second edition, and I'm taking the, to, taking the lead now and running Adventures in Middle-Earth for my wife's family. And we are playing sort of a homebrew. I'll get to that later. Uh, but my wife's family, many of the members in the family are big Tolkien fans. This is, a, this is an instant hit uh, and a pretty easy sell for this group. This is basically the Lord of the Rings for 5th edition D&D. It's, it's kind of a direct adaptation from their one ring role-playing game system. Like a bunch of the stuff in there is, is kind of adapted for 5th edition. It's, I think it's also pertinent to say that it's, it's probably equal parts Lord of the Rings and Hobbit. They've done a pretty good job, and I think the one ring did the same thing. Uh, mixing in a little bit more of the levity and a bit more of the, the lighthearted aspects of Tolkien that the Hobbit, I think, embodies. Oh, that's good. Um, that's as good. well as some of the dark, you know, foreboding shadow stuff from the Lord of the Rings. But I, I think they're trying to walk the line between the more serious Lord of the Rings and a bit more of the lighthearted Hobbit stuff. I, I love that. I think that's great. I kind of want to play it now just because of that. Don't get me wrong. I like me some serious epic fantasy, but I really do love things like Riddles in the Dark stuff like that. There's actually a riddle skill. We'll, we'll get to that. Who are the characters in this game then? Like, who are you playing? So you obviously you play heroes from Middle-earth fighting back against the shadow um, and it's set during the era between The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings trilogy. Again, kind of riding that line. No one's Gandalf. I'll put that out there up front. So if anyone's hoping to be Gandalf, this is not your game. But you're everybody else. You're Frodo, you're Aragorn, you are uh, Legolas and Gimli, you're the dwarves, you're all the characters... Um, that you've read and enjoyed in the stories. You take quests and, and uh, from wizards and prominent NPCs, either Gandalf himself, perhaps uh, Radagast, or any of the other notable NPCs around Middle-earth in that era. Um, and you're generally fighting back against the Shadow, the Shadow being uh, Sauron and his plans. Again, set in this era, this is the era when Sauron is gathering his forces and uh, preparing to make his moves that he does in the Lord of the Rings trilogy. So um, sort of the, the, the elevator pitch is you are agents of Gandalf, you know, preparing for the, the big war of the ring. Agents of the light. Do you sometimes take a event? You t- sometimes take quests from like um, uh, Galadriel and them from like Rivendell. And yes, that is definitely, I think the intention of this game is that you are wandering around specific areas, at least in the, in the core books, it's Rovanian, which is everything to the East of the Misty Mountains, all the way past Mirkwood and the Lonely Mountain, and then all the way down towards uh, the edge of Rohan. So it's it's sort of a specific area in the core book, but clearly they are expanding upon that rapidly as every supplement comes out and spreads out across all of Middle-earth. So definitely a game where you are visiting prominent people that you would know from the stories who are giving you quests or uh, giving you aid, that kind of thing. You know who we're playing now? Uh when we're playing the game, what does an adventure look like? Like you get your you get your quest from your wizard or your important NPC, and then what happens? So the game is broken into some phases, and this is something that again sets it aside from D and D. These games have a very clear set of journey rules. In fact, we call it a journey phase, and they're basically travel rules. Travel for going overland on that uh, very famous map. 
And in the back of all of these um, beautiful rule books is a hex map of a portion of Middle Earth. In the core books, it's the, the Wilderlands of, of Rovanion. It stretches from, let's say, Rivendale to the Lonely Mountains and from uh, the north all the way down to the edge of Fangorn Forest. And it's all colored, color-coded across this, uh, this hex grid that shows distance and the colors, uh, indicate what type of terrain it is. And so the way that, the way the journey phase works is the players will chart their, chart their course across Middle Earth and you roll on a series of tables. You roll a departure roll. You roll a couple checks for encounters along the way. You will have a couple encounters. They may not be bad. They may not be good. Um, and then you have one more roll for the arrival. Further supplements seem to be giving you more tables. That way you still have, you know, continued variance after you keep playing, playing the same tables over and over again. Is there anything in the book that helps you construct new tables? Making your own journey tables, page 61. It's like a five-page spread. There's rules to, to make your own tables from scratch. And they give you basically an, uh, an idea of what the mechanical effects should be and some ideas about what kind of skill checks you might want to use for different results. Yeah, looks pretty good. I'm going to use this. All right, fun. Nice. So that's the journey phase. Yeah, you do the journey phase, and that's supposed to take a, a significant amount of time, probably anywhere from one to maybe four or five encounters. In our experience, we did two encounters and all the different table rolls, and it took us about an hour of gameplay. But it was pretty fun. It was kind of not really intense, even though they, they met a threat for one of their encounters. We sort of did it theater of the mind real quick and just kept that moving along so we can keep the pace and then focus on uh, the next phase of the game, which is the adventure phase. So once you arrive at the location, the adventure phase. The adventure phase hey. is just D&D. It's um, oh, okay. exploring a crypt, save a village, protect a caravan, deal with goblins, brave the paths of Mirkwood, uh, do the quest you were sent there for. This is basically just regular D&D. There's no extra mechanics for uh, the adventure phase. Okay, so that's just straight D&D then. Like we're just playing the game that we're all very comfortable with. Yeah, and the final phase of the game uh, is they call it the fellowship phase. And this is a, effectively an organized um, downtime phase. So it's pretty similar to organized play downtime. Um, it feels a lot like the winter phase in the game Mouse Guard, if anyone's played that. It's not quite as mechanical as downtime in games like Blades in the Dark. Mm -hmm. um, but there are some mechanical aspects to the downtime fellowship phase. So let's talk about this real quick. What does a downtime phase look like? Like, do you get like a certain amount of like points or moves or actions that you can take during that, that period of time? Or uh, is it just using the downtime mechanics from D and D or how does it, how does it work? It doesn't seem to be quite as rigorously uh, defined as uh, something that gives you a certain number of actions, uh, but players do have any anything from a few weeks to a full season of downtime to, take some actions, do what you would do in a D&D &D downtime. You're either going to do some research, you're going to get back with your family. It's also assumed that during that downtime phase, you will do the back again part of there and back again. So the there part was handled in the journey phase. The back again, nah, you don't really hear about Bilbo's journey back from the Lonely Mountain. He just kind of arrives back in the Shire after maybe a chapter without really too much struggle on the way home. They kind of adapted the same thing here. So once you've gone, if you're from Lake Town, but you cross Mirkwood, at the end of an adventure, the player can say, I return to Lake Town. And they just kind of go back there. Uh, that's really not part of the game to make them have an arduous uh, journey back to their homelands. 
So it kind of gives the players that freedom to say, oh, during my downtime, I'm going to go to Gondor. I'm going to go to some of these these, these famous places uh, and, and pursue some downtime actions. That makes sense. I like that a lot. That's pretty cool. Yeah, it also allows players to clear off some long-term stress they might have gained, uh, which is something called shadow points we can talk about in a bit. So yeah, it's, it's various downtime activities they can follow. So that's a, a typical adventure, a journey, adventure, and a fellowship phase. And the game makes it pretty clear that the intention here is that the players, this, this whole uh, cycle of phases takes about a year. So that effectively your players are doing one adventure a year. That to me seemed like a bit of an arbitrary call, uh, but obviously any GM can decide that you know it's shorter or faster than that. Uh, but they want your players to grow slowly over the years, for sure. Plus, the journey phase is about traveling, so that takes time too, especially when you're traveling the breadth and width of Middle Earth. Absolutely. So that's that's what an adventure looks like. That's pretty cool. I like that a lot. Let's move on to something else. Like how how does this game make it feel like Tolkien's Middle Earth? So the monsters, uh, obviously, you can pull up your mo- your monster manual and look up orcs, uh, but the orcs they have in the in this book uh, have a bit more of a Tolkien flavor to them. So they all have sunlight sensitivity. Sensitive to sunlight, they take disadvantage on their attack rolls if they see the sun. There's a a few of these little mechanical aspects they've sort of thrown in using the 5e mechanics to give them, to give the monsters a bit of a, a bit of a, a Tolkien flavor. I think some of the most notable ones are basically that sunlight sensitivity that all the orc kind have. So the orcs don't just hang out. They need to have, they need to march underneath the shadow of, you know, a volcano or, um, you know, under, under, under the, the shadow of night something like that. So a lot of the monsters have those uh, little effects, uh, but otherwise they're effectively just fifth edition monsters. Mm-hmm. So there's that aspect. Um, none of the monsters are spell slinging, right? So there's not really spell slinging in Lord of the Rings, but there are magical creatures. So there are trolls and there are uh, barrow whites and sort of um, creatures that are charged with magic, but no one's throwing fireballs. So there's that aspect of the sort of the Tolkien vibe to the monsters. It's got that more low magic. Uh, magic is really very, very special or very um, strange and unnormal in a lot of ways, right? Yeah. So magic is, is subtle in general, but it's it's inherent. So, you know, the world of Middle-earth is where the magic is as opposed to the, the, the heroes themselves. So, you know, Gandalf is magical because Gandalf is a part of the world. He's a, a spirit, you know, in the mm-hmm. in the lore. That feeds into, I think, some are, some are one of the best mechanics that make this feel like a Tolkien game, which are the magic items. Okay, hit me with it. Uh, the magic item chapter, I was really pleased when I got to this. I expected to just read about magical swords, and that was it. But they seem to have taken some care uh, making some interesting 5th edition mechanics here. So they sort of separate magic items into two things. There's the, the your more uh, common magical items, so your, your boots of elven kind or you know the cloak that Frodo throws over himself to hide and look like a rock formation, those kind of items. Those items all give some sort of modest bonus, which is something like um, an additional proficiency bonus to your skill. So that, they do that all okay. the time. But if you want them to do something near impossible, like let's say you're a hobbit and you're hanging out by the gates of Mordor and you need to, to hide from the troops that are marching by... You throw the cloak over yourself, and you can spend inspiration to power this item to do some impossible feat, like make you look like a rock formation. And there's levels, and this is also another toolkit where the game explains how you can uh, invent these items, the different skill checks they can apply to, 
lots of different ideas on how to build them. They really give you a full toolkit to work with. Uh, so, it, for instance, in our game, our elf found uh, some elven boots, and he wanted to do like a wall run in a dungeon. So he said, can I spend my inspiration to use these these boots to kind of run you know, five, you know, uh, five squares, 25 feet along the wall and end up behind that monster. I said, absolutely. He spends his inspiration and he just does it. Uh, I let him roll for it because he wanted to roll for it, but he still made it. So you can kind of power these items by using your inspiration. And at higher levels, you can get more and more powerful effects if you also spend hit dice. So I won't explain the entire mechanical system they provide, but you're basically spending your inspiration and some variable number of hit and or some variable number of hit dice to power magical effects. That's really cool. I like that a lot. It's something you can't unsee. I'm, I'm certainly going to bring that into my regular 5th edition game because it's just sort of a, it's, it's a nice way to have those magical items be important to the person who's taking the action, not just the item does it. I gave my, my heroes a ring of uh, um, Rothskopel. I'm getting the name wrong. Basically, the town uh, <laughs> where... Radagast is from his little enclave, um, and mm-hmm. this is this this item gives them a boost to animal handling. But they now know they can use that ring not only to have to be better at animal handling, but if they want to talk to some woodland creature, they can spend their inspiration to have that near impossible connection, or uh, spend some hit dice to have a literally an impossible connection or communication with some animal. So it can kind of go in any way the players want. And it allows them to kind of be creative with what effect they want to see out of their magic item. And I think that's probably the most fun part about it is it gives players a bit of narrative control to, to, to make these magic items what they want them to be. Customize them a little bit on the fly. Yeah, I love everything about that. Like It's flexibility. It makes, makes magic items special. It gives them emergent powers in a lot of ways. And so I'm not sure if this is part of the one ring system or not. But this this seems like a pretty good fifth edition mechanic. That's one thing that I think I've noticed in these books is that this does not seem like a phoned in direct rewrite of the One Ring. It seems like whoever uh, designed these, and I'm sure I could look up the book and <laughs> see who actually did the designing on these. But the team doing the the fifth the five E mechanics gave it some some attention. These are not just sort of grabbed over from the the, the One Ring RPG. It seems like. Everything I've heard about this game is they, they took a lot of the ideas, but they designed them right into 5th edition to make them work with the mechanics of 5th edition. Yeah, and I, I'm imagining that they're probably seeing a huge bump in sales. And of course, uh, I can fully accept they're just reusing art and uh, mechanics and ideas and adventures from the One Ring. I have no problem with that. I kind of feel like I missed out on that awesome game. So this mm-hmm. is my chance now to get the same thing in a system that I know and love. Beyond those minor magic items, I want to talk real quickly about uh, legendary artifacts, which they make a right. separate section. So it's important because if you're going to play a game like this, like, I mean, you're not going to use the one ring. Maybe you are, but you might pick up some other thing that's like the one ring. And that's a kind of a big part of what makes the Lord of the Rings, the Lord of the Rings, right? Yeah. Or you're just walking along in a troll cave and the GM says, Hey, why not? You know what? You find uh, some elven magical blades. You find glandering, uh-huh. right? This, this happens. So the way they handle these things is something that um, I had to laugh. So I, I was just catching up on your show today, and Sean mentioned this, I think, last week, that he wishes magical items would scale with character. Well, that's precisely what this is. Your magical items, if you find something like Glamdring, if you find a magical sword, 
Gandalf never throws out Glamdring for a better plus two sword later on. It just gets better and better depending on who's wielding it. So depending on the on the level of the person wielding it, the item can unlock new qualities. And these are pretty potent qualities. They're they're well beyond the plus one range. So when you're at levels, I think one through three, the weapon has one quality. Beyond three, it gains a second quality. I think beyond I want to say five or six, it gains another quality, and then again at like thirteen, it gains yet another quality. So as your character levels up, or if the weapon's in in the, in the hands of someone more powerful, it has more of these qualities unlocked, and they get they start getting ridiculous. Like they they are up there with your you know your plus five sort of I don't know the the, the defender the classic you know D and D swords, uh, big powerful weapons that have. Uh, bane attributes where they do, you know, crazy critical damage to orcs if you, if it has orc bane power, um, or their fell blades. And again, this, the, the books give you this really nice tool set to work with to design a weapon depending on who crafted it. So another Tolkien aspect here is that you have weapons that are designed and forged by elves, by dwarves, or by the Numenorians. And so each one of them has a little set of characteristics that would be common in a given sword or weapon or armor. Uh, so again, those toolkits are a lot of fun for, for GMs to play with. But it seems like when you get this magical sword, uh, you know, a player is never going to hand, hand over their new Norian blade. They're going to use it all the way to the end and, and see these new aspects develop uh, as their character gets better and better. All right. So that's magic items. I love it. I really want to play around with it and maybe make some stuff with it and give it away to people that give us money for the, for the shows. You can't unsee it. You see this design for magic weapons and you're like, yep, this is how I'm going to do it in fifth edition. Now you're just going to do it. <laughs> it's, it's so much more interesting than having a, a long sword plus one. They're just saying that your magic items have to have more meaning than just being a magical sword. It's got to have a life, a history, and uh, it's got to be special in the hands of the wielder. So that's magic items. And I would love to sit and talk about magic items for another hour and a half. Like maybe we should sit down and talk about magic items sometime, you and me, and talk about how we can, maybe we'll sit down sometime for down with D&D and make one. We can't skip Sean. I want, I want to hear the wisdom. Yeah, we, we should do that too. So what makes this game different from fifth edition? So I guess the main things are the structured play that we talked about, the adventure phase, the fellowship phase. There's some, there's some more cosmetic things that there's uh, the character classes are, variations of what you see in the player's handbook. So there's like a warrior, it's just a fighter, right? There is a treasure, a treasure hunter, it's it's the rogue. Um, there is a slayer, it's the barbarian. Um, so a lot of the classes are nearly duplicated, and of course they're pretty transparent about that. They say this is, you know, we're pulling from the open gaming license, where we want you to have familiarity with what's being played. But there's no magic classes. There's no clerics, there's no wizards. So the characters don't have access to any magic through character through character design. The only magic comes from inherent things like items or uh, boons and things that the, that the GM might give out. Uh, they do handle I will throw that they do handle healing with the scholar class. Scholar is sort of like a bard slash inquisitive rogue wizard type thing, and the 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 scholar has a basically a bag of herbs <laughs> that he can use to do some minor healing which basically fills the niche of, hey, people get hurt in, in D&D and need some, need some Athalas root or something like that. And so he has a certain number of applications of healing herbs. So they do handle healing a little bit, 
so there's that those character classes are variations on the, on the player's handbook, but they're pretty approachable from anyone who's played D&D before. Races are now cultures, so you have the people of Lake, the men of Lake Town, the men of Rohan, uh, men of Gondor, uh, halflings of the Shire, elves of Mirkwood. It's not delineated by race; it's done by culture, and each culture has a unique flavor to it. So, someone, you know, a man from Bree is different than a man from Lakewood, or sorry, uh, Lake Town, in their uh, character sort of you know race attributes. This goes further with feats. Feats are now uh, replaced with virtues. And virtues are separated by the culture. So the culture of Gondor is very different than the culture of the elves of Mirkwood. And so you are limited to a certain set of these virtues that you can pick from. Uh, so that, and these, these virtues really keep looping back to the, the, the Middle Earth vibe. You know, they, they're locking you into those cultures that you recognize from the books. Um, and they, some of the abilities are actually quite potent, uh, probably more so than feats. Um, and they really love hobbits. There's the hobbits just have so many abilities that they they would probably be broken compared to um, fifth edition uh, halflings. So there's quite a lot of love for hobbits in these books. Beyond that, there are really fun backgrounds. Backgrounds are sort of like your it's an it's an all encompassing background that gives you a bit more motivation than the fifth edition background. So instead of being a criminal you're actually uh, haunted by the shadow. And it, it gives you a bit of a, a player in to have a motivation to adventure in the world, which I really like. I think that all role-playing games should give you should give the players a really easy excuse to play the game they've sat down to play with some sort of background or some sort of base motivation for them to drive by. Obviously, a good GM will ask for that, but this, this gives the players that right up front. What other things are there? I, mean, I heard there's a new condition, something called Miserable. Uh, there is a miserable condition. We have not approached anything like this in our game yet, but uh, there's no alignment. Players have a shadow effect or a corruption effect where they have, um, you know, they're greedy or they're cowardice, something like that. They have some aspect of their character that can be affected by corruption over time. Corruption is handed out. It's a corruption point, uh, and you gather corruption points. If they ever get more corruption points than your wisdom, you become miserable. Um, and not to belabor it too much, but, uh, the miserable condition sucks. It's, you know, uh, disadvantage in lots of things. Think Frodo on the last leg of the trip into Mordor. He was a total mess. He was miserable. You get these corruption points by experiencing evil. Like if you're chased by ring wraiths, you might, it's, it's a harrowing thing. You might take a shadow point. If you travel through blighted lands, like traveling across Mordor or these evil lands, just being there saps your soul a little bit because that inherent magic in the world. And you can also get them as punishment for doing evil things. I'm not really a fan of that aspect. I don't like to punish players for doing things. I'd rather handle that um, in-game, but that's always there too in case somebody wants to be a real um, evil dork and start uh, murdering townsfolk. XP is handled differently than 5e, so there's no X, there's no experience points for orcs and things. They handle it, they just tell you right up front, go ahead and use milestone XP. This is not really a kind of game where you will be trying to kill things to get experience. Uh, and the Lore Master's mm-hmm. Guide does a pretty good job explaining how to aim the game in those directions as well. Well, that's cool. I like that a lot. I mean, if it's going to call it right out, like do the milestone XP so you can just control the pace of the story because that's that's a good way to do it, right? Because it's more about plot points and story points and things like that. In fact, uh, you mentioned to me that you have a, a milestone XP house rule. Yeah, it's just a riff on on what's in the book. So we use milestone XP. 
I like giving players some sort of currency for XP, even though we're not going to use XP. I just call them milestone XPs. Uh, and you need your next level and milestones to level up. So to go from level one to level two, you need two milestones, and then three for level three, four for level four, and so and so. And I sort of lightly defined a milestone as anything, a notable plot point, a successful journey would gain them one, one of these milestones, uh, defeating a notable enemy, rescuing some sort of thing, a quest goals. And I was sort of trying to do the math here, and it seems like this is basically mirroring what uh, a good XP curve would be or some of the advice for, for milestone XP. But it gives players some sort of thing they can mark on their sheet, which I think is a nice tactile thing to give them. Those are all the things that are different. Yeah. I really like your milestone XP house rule. I think that's pretty neat. Since you've been playing this game, how do you think that a 5E player can transition from 5th edition to Adventures of Middle-Earth? Like, What would make it easy for them? So the player's guide is spares you a lot of the... You, you need the player's handbook. I'll say that right up front. I think the book says you don't need it, but uh, a lot of the rules and, and stuff you'd expect to find in the player's handbook uh, are not in the player's guide for this game. So I think you, you someone has to have a copy of the player's handbook. But other than that, there's really just the player's handbook and the lore master's guide, and everything else beyond that are just going to be uh, adventures and setting guides and that kind of stuff. So really just the two core, core rule books are what you would need to get into it in my opinion. Of course, only the lore master or the game master needs that book. For what it's worth, Cubicle 7 runs a lot of PDF sales, and uh, they tend to contribute to a lot of bundles of holding, so you can just kind of mm-hmm. watch out for it. I wouldn't be surprised to see this entire lineup uh, in the next year be offered in some bundle, and I think it was just a few weeks ago they had 25% off on drive through and all their, all their books for this stuff. So Cubicle 7 knows how to move their product. Another good pointer for, for trying out this game and going from 5e is uh, find a group of people who want to play in Middle-earth. Uh, I wouldn't just drop this on people and expect them to be into it unless they're into it. So in our in our case, we had a few Tolkien fans who uh, playing in the Tolkien setting meant a whole lot more to them than just playing in my own homebrew. So uh, when we said, hey, let's play in Middle-earth, they were excited. So uh, find at least a couple players in the group who really want to play in Middle Earth. I think that's key. I mean, I think that's important. Like, why play in Middle Earth if you don't want to play with a bunch of people who want to play in Middle Earth, right? Mechanically, it's going to be the same as D&D 5th Edition. Uh, my wife is literally playing the same character she's playing in our D&D game in Middle Earth. She's playing a Slayer in Middle Earth and a Barbarian in D&D 5th Edition. We're sort of almost comically making it the exact same character so that she doesn't have to relearn uh, mechanics. And she also likes to do the Rage ability, so... So you want to change that. So you just jump right into it from that aspect. Nice. Are those all the tips for that then? I think so. I think if you're if you're super into to Lord of the Rings um, and you want your D&D game to have a distinct Lord of the Rings flavor, I was actually surprised to see how much were in these two books for me as a game master to play with. That you know, I, Not only am I pleased with my purchase, I'm, I'm now going to be following the product because they keep putting a lot of good stuff out there that surprises me and makes me go, oh, hey, this is actually worth my while. This is not just another, you know, obvious uh, advice on how to run things book. To close this out, um, you have a list of things that are the reasons that you really dig Adventures in Middle Earth. So why don't you relate once again, what are the things that really get you going about Adventures in Middle Earth? So the things that I like from a GM standpoint mechanically is a heavy use of inspiration. This game uses so much inspiration it powers your magical items. It's often a reward or a penalty for some of these random roll tables in the journey phase. 
And it gets me thinking that this, that the designers really want you to be handing out inspiration a lot. And my rule of thumb is I hand out inspiration enough that my players say, Oh, Hey, I've already got inspiration. And I say, okay, cool. Maybe use it next time because you can't have two inspiration. Can you? No, you can't. Yeah. So I want to just, I, I want them to see that, Hey, it's coming often enough that you shouldn't hoard it. Don't hang on to it. Use it because I'm going to give it to you again. I'm going to keep offering you inspiration. And especially when I, when they now have a few minor magical items that they can sort of use their inspiration to power. So I'm a big fan of how much they've uh, hammered on inspiration. Um, it's called out in, in several of the backgrounds and the virtues of, of how they can use inspiration to, to do a thing. So it's definitely being used as a currency in the game. Yeah, that means the economy of inspiration needs to be uh, much more back and forth than like it needs to be spent and it needs to be given more often. Yes, and I think that might be a bit of an advanced GM tactic. I think I've played enough 5th edition with myself and other game masters to recognize that I tend to be pretty generous with inspiration, and I think some game masters just kind of forget to do it. I don't think it's they're trying to be stingy, but I think it's easy to forget to hand out inspiration. So if you're going to try this game and you're one of those game masters who doesn't think about inspiration, maybe try one of the advice that you see in the GMG. And uh, make it a player thing. Let the, make the players be responsible for handing out inspiration, um, and because they they will do it plenty. <laughs> yeah, it is a thing that I am pretty bad at. Like I never think about the inspiration thing, which is weird because I'm really good about handing out fate points when I'm playing fate. Yep, this game has actually made me rethink that, and I'm now trying to be way more proactive in giving out inspiration. It's so balanced because players can't hoard it, and so when someone's just been sitting on their, their inspiration, and you say, "Hey, Chris." good job. That was awesome. Take inspiration. You go, Oh, I've already got it. I just kind of shrug and go, okay, well, congratulations. You would have earned it again. And that just makes Chris go, Oh crap. I should be spending this. Yep. That's, that's the way to do it. I do have one critique of adventures in middle earth that I want to throw out there. And I think it's less about a critique from cubicle seven and more critique of probably what they're, they're probably constrained by the licensing of token IP, but this game is very constrained by the fiction and very constrained in its location and timeline. So I'm actually not that inspired by the era between The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings because we know what's going to happen. And I don't, I'm sure there's other game masters out there who would like that part, but probably just as many who really would like to have an open playing field. So we're actually playing our game in the fourth age after the movies and are sort of venturing into unplotted territory. But from what I've heard about the Tolkien uh, licensing, they really do have to keep things constrained to what was mentioned in the books, so they can't really make up a ton of new things, and they can't really venture off the map as much. Um, so that's my only critique, is that I think with just this core book, if your game master's not really thinking on a grand scale, you might not get the big epic feeling you were hoping for. For me, Lord of the Rings is, is a big, epic Tolkien stuff. It's fighting Sauron, taking the ring to the center of that godforsaken place. Um, and some of the adventures offered are like, hey, just go rescue a merchant in Mirkwood, which mm-hmm. might be standard D&D, but for me, that's not a Tolkien plot. No, no, it's not. It's not a Tolkien plot. So I think that's probably my biggest critique. There are a few small things that I think are sort of comical. Like, uh, my brother-in-law plays an elf, and he's like, I'm an elf, I should know this information. And I'm like, ah, crap, you're level one, but you are an elf, aren't you? I guess you should know. And I just sort of handle him being an elf in a different way, because elves are special in Tolkien. They are, at least fictionally, uh, a bit more unique and special 
than everybody else. Yeah, they're ancient, right? They, they've been around for a long time. Yeah, we sort of just said, well, you know what? You fought in the War of the Ring, but you hung out the last two centuries just in the Enclave. And so you kind of lost your skill. He's like, yeah, cool. I like that. But you, there needed to be some explanation in there. There's also a riddle skill, which is kind of fun to use. Um, we found some interesting ways to use the riddle skill, which is ironic because I actually provided my players with a literal riddle to solve. And of course, nobody wants to roll the solved riddle. They all sit there with pen and pencil and try to figure out the riddle. Do it in a metagame sense because riddles are fun. So the riddle, the riddle skill is a bit of an interesting add to the skill list. It's clearly there for you know for hobbits and things to uh, to riddle with each other. But I need to read the riddle section of this game because I need to see how they handle it. Because this this idea of riddles in games has always been a thing to me. Because you get that thing like I'm not my character, right? My character might be better at solving riddles or worse at solving riddles than I am. Yes, and I think it's, that's a tough bridge for some players who want to say, well, I know I'm playing an idiot, but I love riddles myself, and I mm-hmm. want to solve this thing. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so there, there's probably some advice in the book that I should probably go over again, but um, that's just one of those little quirks of the game. There's plenty of source material. I'll throw that out there for, for Tolkien in general, right? This is not a new setting that you have to educate yourselves on. If your players are even casual players and they've seen the movies, because they probably have, they're ready to play. You can just drop them in. Their minds will be thinking about the movies, which is perfect. So there's there's no there's no end of source material. Um, this is not even the first game set in Middle Earth. You know, I say uh, in our show notes, go out and get yourself some Merp, some Middle Earth role playing from the '80s, um, which I'm pretty sure is now. Uh, I don't think anyone even owns their rights, so maybe you can find them on the internet. I'm not sure. But there's endless source material for, for this game, just looking over the previous versions of, of Lord of the Rings, uh, role-playing or uh, Wikipedia sites, that kind of stuff. It's, it's Lord of the Rings, right? It's, it's Middle-earth. There's endless source material. Heck, there's a, there's a bunch of novels that you can read. There are, there are a few. Uh, it's also worth noting that the One Ring, uh, you know, the sister game for this, is actually currently on, a, on two different bundles of holding. Will it still be in those bundles of holding uh, when this episode drops? I don't know. <laughs> they just started today, so they probably will be next week if you go grab them yeah, quick. There you go. Because these episodes now drop a week after they're recorded. So there you go, folks. So if, they're, if they are in existence, I'll have a link in the show notes. We'll find out. <laughs> One thing I wanted to throw out there uh, real quick. This is nothing related to uh, mechanics in this game, but I thought it was something that you and Sean might appreciate. I think you guys tweeted an article about uh, ways to spice up your D&D 5th edition game. Mm-hmm. And one of those recommendations was using attack saves instead of attack instead of the game master rolling to attack you, the players would just make an attack save versus some sort of I, uh, DC. I did this in my um in my spell jam game. I used this rule. It was it was very effective. I actually liked it a lot. It was fantastic. My players loved it. You know, we had a huge bunch of orcs there fighting. I could just say you, you, and you. Make a make an attack save DC fifteen. If you fail, take five damage. And they just did it, and they moved on. It made the 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 GM's turn of handling lots of monsters really easy to work with. But it also allowed them to use inspiration. So again, we go back to that that, that heavy use of inspiration. The more I give it out, now they can use an armor save and spend inspiration if they really don't want to get hit. They can spend inspiration on that on that armor save. And, you know, avoid an attack or something like that. So, uh, again, more outlets for inspiration, the better. And really, like, that that's cool because if if I'm thinking about, like, not the game the game version of it, but, like, how it feels at the table and how the story feels, like, the more often that you're letting the heroes roll the dice, the more it feels like the camera's actually on them doing things. 
Yeah, and of course, you and I are both of the uh, the Dungeon World school, where hey, I don't have to do anything. I just tell you, and I can I can focus on what's happening and managing the table, and not have to stop and do math. And then we had a conversation about how you did that, but when it came to boss monsters, you let the boss monsters roll the dice themselves for their attack rolls instead of having armor saves, which even is a cooler moment because once you do that, it gives the um, these boss or epic level or legendary creatures, it puts the f- focus on them. It gives them the spotlight so they don't feel like mooks anymore. Yeah, and also yeah. removes that ability for the players to spend inspiration on their attack save. So for what it's worth, the, the mechanics we use, we use uh, 10 minus your AC. That would be the modifier you rolled for your attack save. And the DC you're rolling against would be 10 plus the enemy's attack modifier. So a goblin with a, with a measly plus 3 attack, and you've got a 15 armor class, you're going to roll a D20 plus 5 versus a DC 13. Um, and that that's basically the exact same math that you would do uh, the other way around for attacking. So it's the same, the same margins of, of success and failure. Um, but it was pretty easy to for the group to handle. So we just added that to the, to the character sheet. We didn't actually remove armor class because when they fought the Barrow White, um, I took took the reins and I drove that monster like I would normally. And all of a sudden, it felt a little bit more epic because they couldn't save their defense saves. They all of a sudden were like, "Oh crap, what's he gonna do?" And I'm rolling damage, and oh my goodness, you know, it it got a bit more harrowing. It, it felt special when they fought uh, a special monster. Just for a point of clarification, it would be your armor class minus ten, right? I'm sorry, armor class minus 10 was your modifier that you've been rolling. Yeah, yeah. So if you have a DC, if you have a 50 armor class, you're rolling your D20 plus five. Well, that is a, that is our discussion about Adventures in Middle Earth and really Drew Smith's uh, discussion about Adventures in Middle Earth. I was just along for the ride. Thank you so much for doing this, Drew. I greatly appreciate it. Yeah, uh, I'm a big fan of this series. I'm going to keep following it. If anybody has questions for me, uh, I'm happy to answer more or get into some, what's in some of the products. People have questions in the community. Ask. I'll be your secret weapon. Well, with that, uh, we should probably get out of here. And I wanted to say thank you, everyone, so much for listening. But before we go, uh, first, some Patreon shout-outs. So Blake Ryan, Batman, Andy Olson, Zach Goins, Colin Brook, Troy Sandlin, Corey Johnston, David Morris, Nick Logue, John Carney, Garrett Cologne, Robert Dorgan, Christopher Gray, Will Doyle, and the Mad Wizard Merwin, who is uh, also a patron of ours, which I think is madness, just straight madness. Well, speaking of patrons, if you'd like to be a patron of Download D&D, you can click on the link to our Patreon page on the website, and for $2 a month, you can get yourself a shout-out. And for $5 a month, not only can you get a shout-out, but also the pre-production show notes, and we'll give we'll try to give Patreons a little extras on uh, most every other week when we get a chance. Yeah, when we can. Uh, if you can't help us monetarily, but you want to give us a boost, you can do so with an Apple Podcast review. Uh, they even help you if you're not listening. They help us if they're not, even if you're not listening to Apple Podcasts, since many of their podcatchers use apple podcasts so it feeds into that mm-hmm. so drew where can people get a hold of you to ask you questions about adventures in middle earth on the internet uh you can just ping me in the dnd uh in the g plus community for mr mark or for down with dnd uh, you can catch me at the Twitters at DownWithDND or at MisdirectedMark. You can also just go to the website where you can uh, leave a comment or you can catch other great shows such as this one. So Cypherspeak is an engaging discussion that covers the evocative and inclusive settings of the Cypher system. Darcy and Troy are entertaining co-hosts who offer GM advice and ideas for use in your games. And that is an excellent show. I love Darcy and Troy and the way that they talk about the Cypher system. All right, so this has been Down with D&D, a misdirected mark production, the mighty media arm of Encoded Designs. 
Why, yes. So, Drew, buddy old pal, what are we going to do now? I think we're going to find some pipe weed and go to an epic adventure. Get down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. Get down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. Get down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. Who's down with D&D? Who's down with D&D? Yeah, you know me. You down with D&D? Yeah, you know me. I'm down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. Who's down with D&D?